Here's what I found to be true. Most coaches, not the good ones, but most suffer from what I call the projecting coach. That is, they project their experience in physical training onto their athlete. So for example, young coaches tend to give their master's athletes the volume and intensity that they themselves could handle, leaving that athlete burnout and metabolically or mechanically broken. Competitive coaches tend to give their general physical preparedness, GPP athletes, the movement selection and frequency that they themselves would take on in their own programming. Another example would be coaches who bias general fitness as the king, don't prescribe programming to their games hopefuls and really high level competitive athletes that resemble the level of sacrifice needed to throw down with the best in the world. If we have someone who's really naturally powerful and they're the ones coaching, someone who's a relatively weak athlete or is not a naturally powerful athlete, so like an aerobic responder, they often don't give them as aggressive as percentage work as they need in order to get the same effect as a really powerful, really strong athlete. Another one would be male coaches often don't know their female athletes' weights by heart. And I could go on and on with this. And if you're a coach, listen up, you need to learn more about your athlete and take on their lens as your program for them that resembles their life. And athletes, in this case, master's athletes, if you aren't communicating with your coach and being open and honest with them and telling them that, hey, I'm feeling beat up, I'm feeling broken down right now, then it's not your coach's fault. It's your fault. And you need to take responsibility for your own programming in the sense that you are going to be providing feedback to your coach. If you provide feedback and then they don't listen, then it's your coach's fault and you need to find a new coach. So my goal today is to outline very clearly what should and should not take place in Masters Athlete GPP programming. Hey, it's Ben Wise and this is The Fitness Movement. Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver incredible training-related content to people just like you. I don't just podcast. I write in-depth fitness articles. I break down common movements in the sport of fitness. I program workout plans, and I offer one-on-one coaching for competitive and recreational athletes. And the best part is most of what I have on ZorFitness.com is totally free. Check out these resources by going to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. Hope to see you there. And welcome back to my rant on GPP programming for master's athletes. So the outline of this episode, the first thing I'm going to go over is defining GPP a little bit more clearly and then going over some of the similarities and differences between GPP and competitive athletes. Next, I'm going to go over aging and specifically what characteristics for a master's athlete are going to be diminishing just because as you get older through the generations, what's going to change? So then how much of this can be prevented? So what can we do to counter some of these things? And then how is it best prevented? So what are some of the best practices that we can use for a master's athlete trying to get them to grow and develop as an athlete? The third point here, you didn't grow up doing CrossFit. So CrossFit did not exist when you were growing up. So how does this change things? Because there are teens now who grew up in their entire life. CrossFit was a thing. It was always a sport. They've always just sort of done this or they're young enough where they has really easy carryover and they don't have a lot of the mobility issues and some of the structural imbalances that an older athlete has because they haven't had consistent exposures to these throughout the years. And they just they weren't doing a lot of these movements for most of their life. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that? How can we counter that through a best practice? And then I'll end off by giving some of the sample workouts for different types or segments of master's athlete populations. 
All right, let's jump into it. Defining GPP, general physical preparedness. And that's kind of a cool term for saying general fitness is like, yeah, I want to generally be in shape. I want to generally feel good. I want to look good. I want to feel good. Um, I want to live long and prosper, that mentality. The first thing we need to realize if we're talking about GPP versus competitive is that people as a whole, doesn't matter if they're young, old, competitive, recreational, European, American, male, female, or any number of other factors, people share more similarities than they do differences. So we can take a lot of the same principles that will apply to any other demographic and apply it onto master's athletes. And if you're within those principles, you're probably going to be just fine. Like it's a good principle to listen to your athlete and have a lot of communication between coach and athlete. Let's take myself as an example. I coach athletes. If I knew zero, nothing about a master's athlete, nothing about their process as they age, how things change, any of that, I knew nothing. It still wouldn't matter if I was still being a good coach and communicating with my athlete. So if I'm getting good feedback from my athlete and all the time saying, man, they're just burnt out and they're not able to handle this volume for whatever reason, I need to back off that volume. And if I don't do that, regardless of what population that is, that is not a good coach. So if we are being a good coach, we listen to our athlete, we understand what's going on. And then regardless of what demographic they are, we can make adjustments for them. So obviously we do already know kind of a baseline of where they're going to be at relative to other sectors of the population, and we can really get more tailored to them. But realize that you don't have to know all the science behind it. This is certainly going to help. But if you're being a good coach or a good athlete and you're giving feedback to your coach or receiving that feedback from your athlete, and you're in communication with each other. Well, then you're already going to be on the right track and you're already going to sidestep a lot of the issues that come about because of poor practices in general. So the next thing we have to realize is that master's is a very broad term. So we could literally have someone who's 35 years old and we could have someone else who is 70 years old, literally double their age. And they're both considered a master's athlete. Like we don't have master's and then grandmasters and then another one. It's all kind of the same. So the principles are just slowly going to get scaled up each generation. If we have someone who's 35 It's going to be different when they're 45. It's going to be different when they're 60, 70, if they're 80 years old. All these principles are just going to continue to shift and get more significant as the generations go by. And that's an intuitive thing. Like most people just understand that. All right. So let's talk about characteristics. What characteristics diminish with age? And for some of our listeners who aren't a master's athlete, we could probably have all the master's athletes out there inform them about what aches and pains and things change over time and how they change over time. But I'm going to silo these into three different categories. I'm going to say the first one is strength, power, and muscle mass decreases. Number two is just speed of recovery decreases. And then three is joint irritation increases. And yes, I realized that I could expand this list to several beyond this, but I'm kind of keeping it to these three just because I want to keep things relatively simple and straightforward because we don't have to overcomplicate this. And if we do hold to a simple model, it's really easy to just control those factors a little bit better. So let's talk about strength, power, and muscle mass and why these things are decreasing over time. So I think firstly, this is a behavioral thing. So most people, as they're aging, they stop doing a lot of the explosive activities they were when they were younger, or a lot of the different planes of motion, and they stop exposing themselves to a lot of the more intense stressors in terms of movement out there. So they stop doing things that are plyometric. They stop doing things that involve lifting super heavy stuff. They stop playing pickup and they stop going skiing and like all these little things that younger people don't even think about a lot of time. 
And it's not to say that an older person should do none of those things, but you have to be able to maintain a quality of life and to be able to have a your fitness practice in this case because you are a GPP athlete, be able to lend itself to you going and be able to take experiences in your life and be able to enjoy those things. That's the whole purpose of this is that you can live long and prosper. It's like you want to be able to have your best life. And then the other piece of this is that older populations don't respond nearly as well to hypertrophy protocols. So in other words, muscle building activities. So if we gave two people the exact same program and the one was much older than the other one, the younger one is going to adapt much quicker and much faster. And this goes back to recovery demands as well. But just understanding that protein synthesis as a whole is just going to be a lot lower and that's going to make that a lot more challenging. So we're going to go over the implications of these in a second, but we're going to stick with the characteristics for now. So number two is going to be the speed of recovery decreasing. And the first reason for this, the reason this is happening is because less sex hormones are produced. So there's less testosterone, there's less estrogen. And because of that, protein synthesis is going to slow. And as someone gets out of a childbearing age and they're not fertile anymore, there's no reason to produce those sex hormones in the same quantity. So it's going to diminish naturally. And that's part of the reason that this happens. And the other part of this is that melatonin production is going to drop off significantly, especially for women post-menopause. And this is going to have a lot of implications. The biggest one is just for sleep efficiency. So sleep efficiency is just simply how much time are you spending awake per night? So the more time you spend awake, the less sleep efficient you are. So just because you're spending more time in bed does not mean that you're getting more sleep. I think we're all pretty aware of that. So if we could increase the amount of sleep that we have while we're in bed, so sleep efficiency improves, and we can also improve the quality of that sleep, so we're getting more deep sleep, more REM, going through all the cycles that we need to be, then we're going to have faster recovery and just overall better quality of life outside of that. And also, we just want to be efficient. Like We don't want to have to spend more time in bed than we need to, so if we can be more efficient with our time in bed, that's great because it allows us to be present in other spaces in our lives, and that's the whole point. And then the second point that's going to decrease your speed of recovery is environmental exposures. And that's what I believe is a big factor, but I also think the research supports this as well, is that as oxidative stress increases, free radicals increase, that there's going to be more cell damage. And this could show up in a number of different ways. But this could be caused from any number of things from eating processed foods because you're getting more chemicals and you're having more sugar and there's just more opportunity for free radicals to show up. Plus, you're getting less antioxidants in. Someone's using prescription drugs through getting more pollutants than just time taking in pollutants is higher, pesticides, if you're a smoker, and all these risk factors that, yes, they're impacted when you're younger as well, but it starts to accumulate and kind of catch up with you as you get older. And the last factor here that's going to decrease the speed of recovery is just an increased level of stressors outside of training. So if we think about a teen athlete, yes, they have some stressors outside training, but compared to an adult in the real world who is maybe in their 30s or 40s, their number of responsibilities is overall less. So their number of stressors that they have outside of training is less. If you have less stressors outside of training, it means you can put more of your adaptation currency, so to speak, into that training bucket and you're going to respond quicker from that. So if you have someone who's older, they have more stressors outside of training, they're married, they've got kids or grandkids, they've got a mortgage, a day job, they have all these responsibilities that they have outside of training, all those stressors are going to be weighing on them throughout their day and they're going to have less adaptation currency, which is again, it's just a mental model of thinking about, they have less potential adaptation to put onto training. And then a third point here is that joint irritations increase. 
this could be because of soft tissue quality. This could just be because of cartilage. This could be just because of wear and tear and years and years of suboptimal movement patterns. There's a number of things that are going to be included in this, one of which is actually being a delayed inflammatory response. So as you age, the speed at which you respond to stressful activities is somewhat diminished. And this is one of the ways this shows up through inflammation. And inflammation gets a bad rap, to be honest. But oftentimes, inflammation can actually be a good thing and something that we want to happen. It brings healing a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, we can do things where we bring too much inflammation too quickly or just be caused from the wrong things. But in general, inflammation is a necessary thing. And we just have to be able to control that and have it in the right doses. The next thing that is causing joint irritation is reduced soft tissue elasticity. So in other words, your muscle tissue, your tendons, your ligaments are not as pliable and think literally just kind of stretchy and reboundy like a rubber band. They don't respond as quickly. They don't have resiliency in the same way that they did when you were younger. Next, collagen is actually less resilient. Collagen is like your hair, nails, cartilage, tendons, all those structures have collagen in them. And they're less resilient and they're slower to be repaired as you age. And then lastly, once again, this is a behavioral thing as well, where people as they age are just spending less time in certain ranges. And if you have not spent time in those ranges, you use it or you lose it, they lose it. So they have reduced mobility, they have less movement quality, which ultimately is going to be leading to greater stress in those exact same movement patterns. So if I have a young person and they move very well and they do 300 air squats in MRF, they're going to have much less stress in their body than an older person who doesn't have the mobility and they don't have the movement quality. So they're putting more wear and tear on their joints. That 300 reps is not the equivalent of the 300 reps for the young good mover. It's a lot higher than that. And then they also respond slower to that. So it's a double edged sword. So we have to be more careful in giving volume to masters athletes and joint irritations is a big part of that. Next, I'm going to go through two sections. The sections are going to be training priorities, so things that we're going to increase doses of, and then reduced training exposures, so things that we're going to be decreasing doses of. So we're going to start on the training priorities. So really, all the things that diminish with age, we need to make sure that we're countering, and therefore we're going to be increasing the training priority. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're giving you more volume of these things. It just means that we are increasing the priority of it in your training. So the first thing is going to be strength and power. And those things aren't exactly the same, but they go very closely. The stronger someone is, they tend to be more powerful. We can just think of power as being the merger of strength and speed. And strength and speed are two qualities that as someone ages, they're going to both diminish. So power is also going to go down as well. And for me, I'm going to give this athlete just a lot of exposures of fundamental motor patterns. So just giving them time and reps, especially if they have a high biological age and a low training age. So they've came into it later in life and they haven't been doing it super long. They need more exposures of the fundamental movement patterns. So making sure that they're hinging and their back is flat and that their pelvic tilt is moving in the right direction and all those things are going on. We need to be very nuanced and specific and do that in ways that are not complex. So don't do that in mixed modal work, having them do that in maybe three sets of 10, five sets of five, keeping it really simple and just making sure that they're actually getting patterns down and that everything is looking very clean. I'm going to give these movement to that athlete in moderate frequency. So making sure that they're getting at least one of three exposures of a particular movement variety in a certain week. 
So for example, if I stick with hinging, making sure that each time they come in, they're getting a hinging activity. And initially this is going to start off where it's a lot more the same movement where maybe it's an RDL every single time they come in if I only see them three days a week. And slowly over time, introducing new variants, whereas maybe if I have someone with a high biological age and a high training age where they've been doing this for a really long time, I'm going to give them a different dose or a different movement almost every time they come in where it could be a kettlebell swing, could be a good morning, it could be an RDL. It could be a sumo deadlift. There's a million different options for that athlete, but they're all hip hinges and they can be able to recognize that. And they're still all going to be fundamental motor patterns. And then lastly, I'm going to make sure I'm focusing on quality of their movement versus the quantity of that. So making sure that they're able to have very high movement quality and that they don't need the volume, especially as they break down and compensations show up. So strength and power is number one. Sustainable aerobic work is going to be number two. So ideally for this, we spend most of our time in low eccentric modalities. So erg work is a great example of low eccentric modalities. There's no real catch phase. Like you could spend a really long time on a bike or a rower and you're probably not going to get sore from that. You will likely get tired, but you're probably not going to get super sore where your soft tissue quality degrades because of that. And as I give, especially a GPP athlete, mixed modal work, so things like a CrossFit Metcon, I'm just going to make sure that those doses are very controlled and that I'm really keeping an eye on total volume as I do that. Controlling the volume of mixed modal work in a class scenario is much harder, but in individual design, it's a whole lot easier. For an athlete that I don't know well, and I believe I said this in episode number three, don't guess, assess, go check that one out. But you need to, as a coach, know very closely how much volume your athlete's going to get in. So if I'm giving an athlete an AMRAP, where it's as many rounds as possible, and it is a time priority, so that's what an AMRAP is, meaning that they have a certain amount of time, and you don't know the work until they get done with the workouts. In other words, you don't know what the volume is going to be because it is a time-based element. If that's the case, I need to know my athlete pretty well, especially if it's a master's athlete because I need to be very careful about how much volume they're getting. So for most master's athletes, I do lean towards work priority because that way I know exactly how much volume is going on. If I give them an EMOM, I give them a four-time workout and know exactly how many reps of that thing they're going to accumulate in that amount of time. And that way I can keep an eye on their volume week over week and making sure that their contraction volume isn't building more than 15 or 20% in a given movement per week. And that's one of the things that can really help ward off some of that joint irritations that a lot of master's athletes are going to be dealing with. And then the final thing for sustainable aerobic work is increasing the speed of recovery. So how quickly an athlete is recovering from the work that they are doing. And that's a large part of the basic aerobic function sessions that I give athletes. But that's also for recovery in kind of their immediate training environment as well, where here I'm mainly focused on their long-term aerobic function, where as aerobic function increases as a general quality, their ability to be able to recover from more volume a little bit quicker is also going to be increased. So for increasing aerobic function, this needs to be something that we do several times a week, and we do this over a course of several years. So it's a very slow, methodical, long-term approach. This is not where I'm trying to peak for competition because, again, this is that doesn't apply to a GPP athlete. We're talking about general fitness here. We're trying to increase their quality of life, and if we can increase their aerobic functioning as a whole, not necessarily in a certain time domain, but just as a general quality, we can increase their general quality of life as we do that. And part of that is going to be recovering faster from workouts so they can feel normal a lot of their life. 
Next training priority that's going to be increased is skill work. So for skill work, there's a few characteristics that I would define as skill work. One is that the fatigue accumulation is low. So you're not getting super fatigued in skill work. If you are getting super fatigued in skill work, that means that it's no longer skill work. It might become density work or something else, but that's perfectly fine, but it's not skill work. And then second point is that it's high intention. And then lastly, it is low intensity. So intention is high, but intensity is low. So maybe the weight is low, but you're really focused as you're going through those reps. That could be skill work. Even if it's maybe a strength activity or it's gymnastics activity, all those things could be focused on skill work. The fourth point that's going to increase is accessory work. And the goal with accessory work, you're not just going to provide random doses of accessory work. The goal is to improve movement quality with whatever exercise selection you have. So if I give an athlete a staggered stance RDL, there has to be a reason why I'm giving that athlete that specific exercise. And maybe it's because um, they're lacking eccentric control on a lot of their hinging movements, but there has to be a reason. If you talk to your coach and they're like, yeah, I'm giving it to you because it's good to do accessory work. That's not a valid reason. Like it has to have a function in your training. And accessory work is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I think for most people, accessory is anything that is not a competitive thing. So in reality, it just could be a good fundamental movement pattern. And if you're a competitor sitting here thinking about it, it's not necessarily something that gets tested. So it could be a snatch grip RDL. And certainly that could be just part of like their regular training and just like a good exercise to throw in there. But for a competitor, that would be something that they would consider to be accessory before a master's GPP athlete that just could be good programming. Something to think about and kind of chew on for a little bit. And then lastly, mobility. And mobility work is really all about time and positions. It's about reclaiming lost ranges. It's about prioritizing transferability. So making sure whatever we're doing, we can actually apply to a movement. And that's the whole point. Mobility is torque in range of motion so that we're actually able to have motor control. Mobility is basically motor control in a specific range of motion. So I won't even go into my rant on mobility for today. I'll save that for another day. But realizing that we have to have a goal with mobility work. Mobility work is not stretching. Stretching can allow someone to move better, but it's not necessarily mobility work. So the first thing is reducing total training load. So a master's athlete's MRV or max recoverable volume is going to be lower because they're a master's athlete. And for the reason, the characteristics that are diminishing that I talked about before, that's the reason they can't handle as much volume. We can do some things to offset it, like the aerobic work, like doing a lot of strength and power activities, but we're not going to be able to offset everything. And all the other ones that I'm going to be going through now basically are stemming from the fact that their max recoverable volume is not as high. So first is a specific pattern frequency. So how often are we hitting a certain movement pattern? Because ultimately, this is going to be producing a lot of joint strain for that athlete. So for example, we could have what is your total contraction volume in bilateral squatting across a week of your training? Whereas if we bump that up too quickly or we just give them too much in general, that that's going to create a lot of joint strain. And this is something, especially if we have someone who has a higher training age, rather than just giving them a ton of bilateral squatting, we can start to incorporate single leg work. And this is where we can start to say, okay, that's where you give them more of that quote accessory work, even though it's just really good programming and someone who's maybe a more competitive athlete would call it accessory. So as a coach or a self-coached athlete, you have to go through and be able to weigh out how often am I hitting each of these patterns? And then what is my total contraction volume? 
And within that, what percentages am I at? Am I kind of at lighter loads? Am I at moderate loads? Am I at heavier loads? And each one of those is going to have kind of a max recoverable volume number. And this is kind of more of a concept than it is really a hard, fast number, but at least starting to look at that and be able to get an idea of where you're at week to week. And if you do jump way up, that's probably why you're getting a lot more joint strain on a particular time. Like if you go from your normal classes to jumping into Murph on Memorial Day, well then, yeah, you're probably going to have a lot more joint strain and irritability over the next week. Third point here is reducing volume in plyometric activities, but you can't pull them out completely. So plyometrics are, let's call them bounding or jumping, especially things that are rebounding. So like double unders, like rebounding box jumps. Again, this goes back to masters of really broad category. So if we have someone who's 35 doing rebounding box jumps, it's a little bit different than if we have someone who's 65 and they're still doing them. And certainly I think good movement is good movement. And it doesn't mean that someone who's 65 should have no rebounding ability because that's not true either. But we have to know the athlete. We have to know their place. If I have an athlete with a very high training age, who's been doing this for a really long time, they know their body well, and it's from a relatively low height, then sure, maybe a rebounding box jump could be appropriate for them in unfatigued settings for even a GPP athlete, right? So again, we have to take all this with a grain of salt, but just kind of understanding that while we reduce the total volume of those plyometric activities so that we're not creating a lot of joint standard, we have to give them doses of that so that they maintain a lot of the strength and power because plyometrics are very high power. So we just have to keep the volume very low on those activities. Because the biggest thing with plyometrics is the volume. It has less to do with the intensity. As long as their tissues are prepared to handle that, it's more about the volume. Next, I would consider removing high-risk movements. Again, this is a GPP athlete. If we have a competitive athlete, those things might be inevitable. And if they are super committed to their goal, like, yes, you still have to be smart in how you program giving pull-ups. But to a degree, A, it's part of the sport. Like, this is the point you have to be willing to do if you want to get to that level. But there's no reason a GPP athlete, especially an older one in older generations, needs to be doing things like kipping pull-ups or kipping handstand push-ups. Like, that is just a recipe to have a shoulder or neck injury. Depending on the athlete, there's no reason that they necessarily need to overhead squat, especially if their positions aren't ready for that. For another athlete, overhead squatting might be totally a possibility and it might not even provide any joint strain at all for them. But I would say that's a rare scenario for a lot of athletes. Just squat snatches aren't something that they need to be doing once they get up into these older generations. The risk reward there just isn't worth it. Once again, I'll consider rebounding box jumps or pistols or heavy touch and go work. Any of those things that I would consider to be more high risk activities, especially if the movement quality isn't top notch, being paired with low fatigue. So potentially you could give an athlete, even a GPP athlete, heavy touch and go work. If they move extremely well and they're not super fatigued, okay, that might work. But that's a pretty narrow window of the population. Next, we have to think about increasing exposures of new movements slowly. So this reduces the likelihood of them getting DOM, so delayed onset muscle soreness. This is a general fitness athlete. The goal is for not them to be limping around because they're so sore. The goal is for them to live long and prosper. And I keep saying that because I want you guys to get it. Understand that as a GPP athlete, your goal is not to trash yourself in the gym every day. The goal is for you to move well and to do that for generations to come. It's not to slam yourself into a wall on a daily basis in training. That's not the goal. The goal is not a brutal, acute dose. The goal is long-term improvements. And then lastly, the number of lactic efforts will go down. So the idea here is just keeping the total CNS hole lower. So a young athlete is going to be able to respond much quicker, once again, because they just have more, quote, adaptation to currency. So they're going to be able to respond quicker from a bunch of lactic efforts 
for an older athlete, they're just going to feel super beat up and burn out because of that. Okay, so there you go, guys. Hope that was helpful. If you want three sample workouts that I wrote for a master's GPP athlete, rather than me reading them to you over this podcast, for the sake of time, I'm going to put them in the show notes and you'll be able to download them. So go to zorfitness.com slash podcast slash 009, this episode number, and you can view those sample workouts there. So a few closing remarks for a master GPP athlete, advice that I would have for them. Number one, be patient. So on average, an athlete who goes into any new activity for the first five to seven years, they're going to see improvement. So it doesn't matter what age you start, that five to seven year window applies. So even if you're like my father and at 50 years old, you pick up cycling and you start working at that, be patient. You're going to have five to seven years of improvement. And that was accurate for him. And it's probably going to be accurate for you. As long as you don't go so aggressively that you get injured and you fall into some of those pitfalls. As long as you're patient and methodical and focused and have high intention in your training, you're going to be just fine. My second thought here is work with a coach. Work with a coach who understands your needs as a master's athlete. So chances are, if you're jumping into class, that is not appropriate for you. It might get adapted because you are working with a coach, but if you're not working with a coach or your coach is prescribing things that make you feel burnt out or beat up all the time, then please get with a coach that actually knows their stuff. I work with a few master's athletes and I would be happy to work with you. So just feel free to email me at ben at zorfitness.com. Next, I would say listen to your body and adjust course as needed. So listen to your body, start to develop that intuition of when you need to go a little bit easier, when you can turn it up a little bit and then adjust course. So adjust your programming, talk with your coach, give feedback. Programming needs to be living and breathing. It needs to adapt with you as an athlete as your life changes. Think long-term. Don't think in terms of weeks or months. Think in terms of decades. And so I think that's something that a lot of athletes, as they age, they do a lot better with. Actually, I think for most part, it's younger people who have less perspective. But still, being patient with yourself within your movement practice and still allowing time, decades of time, because that is the goal. The goal is to live long and prosper. As part of this thinking long-term, don't sacrifice your short-term mental or physical health to chase a goal. Likely, even if you are a GPP athlete, you still have goals, training-related goals that you want to go after. Don't sacrifice your long-term mental or physical health by going after those things. It's not going to be worth it. I promise you that. Think long-term. Get outside of the box. Like literally get outside of your gym. Be outside. Do things outside with your fitness that you can enjoy. So another thing about thinking long-term is allowing your fitness practice to allow you to be more present, not less present. So allowing you to show up more often to the things in your lives that you want to be present for rather than you avoiding those things or missing out on those things because you're at the gym. The goal is for your movement practice to allow you to go outside of the gym and be more present and be more engaged with your kids and grandkids and your family and things that matter to you the most. Those are the things that matter in the long terms. Show up for those things and don't live inside the gym. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you learned something, but more than anything, I hope you can apply this. I wish you the best in your future programming for GPP Masters athletes, and as always, stay the course. And I truly appreciate all of you listening. In order for me to keep doing what I'm doing with the fitness movement, it's really important that I have people listening and following along with the podcast. That's how I'm going to be able to continue to do what I'm doing. So if you do enjoy these shows, please send them to your friends, your fellow fitnessers who would enjoy this type of content. And of course, it's always helpful if you leave a rating or review. Hey, it's Ben again. 
And one of my main responsibilities besides producing content like the fitness movement is being a coach. I work one-on-one with athletes to create an individualized plan to help them reach their goals. So let's say you hire me. The first thing I'll do is learn about you. We'll jump on a video call and chat. And this is something we do every training cycle. It becomes a very regular part of our schedule, which allows us to stay on the same page with things. I'll also take you through an in-depth assessment to really get a very accurate, detailed look at where you're at and what your specific limitations are. Then it's my job to create a plan to help you achieve your goals. In other words, taking you from where you're at to where you want to be. And here's the thing is that I will be 100% the person who program every workout for you. And when you send me film and tag in your videos, I'll be the one providing adjustments for your technique and cues to help you correct your movement errors. So you pay me month by month and there's zero commitment. You have nothing to risk and all the gains to make. Sign up today by going to zorfitness.com slash coaching or email me at ben at zorfitness.com.